What's up, y'all? Chris Bates here with the At Last Podcast, brought to you by the Advantage Podcast Network. Got my guy Adam Katie with me. We are absent of the illustrious Dr. Christian Ross, but we've got a great guest in his absence who I'll let Adam introduce. I'm excited once again to introduce our guest. John Abdu is our guest. He currently leads as the Chief Sports Performance Officer of USA Water Polo. He is a former collegiate athlete. He has coached at the collegiate and national levels. He holds degrees from UC Irvine and Bucknell University. Shout out Patriot League. And he taught social sciences at Burbank High School, Bulldogs. That's right. Man, I know I say it every episode, but every distinguished episode. guest, Chris, John is no exception <laughs> to that. My guy, please help me welcome John Abdu to the Atlas Podcast. Welcome, 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 John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Excited yeah, to be here. Yeah. Yep. We're, we're glad to have you. Yeah. We, we're just going to dive on in, pun intended, since yeah. uh, eventually we'll start yeah. talking about aquatics <laughs> at some point. John, I yeah. think it would be appropriate for us to start with you talking to us about like your ethnic background. So for listeners who've been following mm-hmm. us for a while, they know kind of what we stand for mm-hmm. with at last podcast and what we're about. And mm-hmm. ethnic identity is a big part of that because in our ethnic mm-hmm. identities, we then want to start addressing some of the discrepancies that we're seeing related to people's ethnic identities in our field of practice. And so I think a part of your gift to us as well as all of our other guests, is their ethnic background and their ethnic story, which will then lead us into mm-hmm. how things can tie in. But yours specifically, so and um, uniqueness and uniqueness. unique, exactly. So, talk to us a little bit about that, man, and we'll 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 see where it yeah. goes. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good vulnerable place to start, you know. And I think at our at our age, right, like it's kind of easier to talk about these things. To really answer that question, you kind of I got to kind of go back a little bit. So, look, I was born in. Um, I was born in Upper Egypt 40 plus years ago, and we moved to the States, came via Houston, Texas to, to Southern California, you know? So, you know, my, my ethnic background is Egyptian, right? So, but within that, there's so much to unpack even, right? Because then when you, you come to the United States and you say that you're Egyptian, that's a very specific place to say that you are from in a place that's trying to put you in a very small box with everybody else, right? So, um, you know, and this, I think, has a lot of... Uh, relevance to you all as, as medical practitioners, right? But when you people have to identify themselves from an ethnic background on forms, one of the things that I learned very early on, especially right when you move here, is they put, when I say they, I mean, most federal and state governments and local municipalities put North African as Caucasian. So they identify North African as Caucasian, right? And so on a lot of applications that I have to like, click early, I'm like, I'm Caucasian. But my life experience is not that of a, of a Caucasian person, right? Or like, or how I would be seen, right? In a lot of places, certainly was not, right? And so, you know, so I, John's I, you know, I pig, being, John has a lot of pigment in his skin, brownish <laughs> of hue for those <laughs> listeners. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very, I'm a very dark brown right now, right? I'm a dark brown right now. But I would say when I was between the ages of like, I don't know, thirteen and twenty, right? I it was my skin was black. You know what I mean, and like got, that's you, the the difference. You know, you got a yeah. you got a Twitter pic in front of a pyramid that is dark. <laughs> that's dark. Yeah, <laughs> so that 
that's what happens when I'm in the sun, right? Yeah, that Twitter pick is right. pretty uh that's pretty dark. And I think I was in that picture 20, 23 in that picture, 23 years old in that picture. So maybe I can extend that range of, of what that is. So so that's why it's not such an easy thing for me to say. And the Chris knows this, I'm sure that's why he asked the question, right? It's not easy for me to say, hey, I'm Egyptian, right? You know, and then you start looking down the box and I'd try to find the other you know, the other box, and then I check other, and then write Egyptian, right? And then I talk to someone and be like, well, isn't Egypt in Africa? Aren't you African then, you know? And then aren't you an African-American? And I'm like, well, yeah, that's kind of been my experience. But I'd love to be able to say that I'm Egyptian because that's where I'm from, right? But then it's like, well, no, well, you're not white, so then you're black. And I'm like, well, that's, okay, that may be true, right? But there's a little more nuance to it as well, you know? And I'm like, how do we keep talking about this, like, in a way that we feel I feel represented or I feel seen. Right. And then especially when you're talking, yeah, it's very intricate. So yeah. it's difficult. And then you start talking about medical spaces. You talk about education spaces. Obviously my experience with any authority, right. Is not one where they see Egyptian, they just see black <laughs> or they see dark Brown or they see whatever they're going to see. And then, and then that's what not you are. White. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. You're not white. Yeah. It's, it's intricate. It's convoluted. It, you know, there's more to it, but that's the, that's Beautiful. the basis, you know? Beautiful. So, so with all of that in mind, which Mm. probably just definitely scratches the surface, but I think you did a good job of illuminating. Mm. There's so much to talk about, right? And, and many people don't even think about these nuances in terms of even how you file, how you fill out applications. Right. Mm. And, and so with all of that in mind though, let's start talking about sports. So then, you know, your first exposure to sport whether it was, I don't know if, whether it was in Egypt or, mm. you know, and, and if so, what, like, let's just talk about your sport background and then mm. we'll be able to get into some nuts and bolts of today. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. Yeah. For, like sport, sport background on a, on a personal level, you know, like in, in Egypt and especially being in a family of kind of first, gera- first generation immigrants to the United States, you know, which is a whole other topic of conversation, right. That we can go down to that cultural yep. experience of coming in. You know, I didn't come. I didn't come from a, a family of athletes, right? So athletics was not something that was, you know, even pushed or un- pushed, for, or frankly, even understood at a rudimentary level, right? Mm-hmm. Like the way that a lot, and I think this happens to a lot of immigrant families as they come into sport, right? Sport is recreation. Sport yep. is not professional. Sport is not life. Sport is so the way you know my dad. You know, when I was talking about sports to my dad as I was coming up, he's like, "Yeah, you know, my dad would be like, I played." soccer in college i'm like oh that's dope my, like you know, at the university of cairo i'm like that's amazing my dad played college soccer and what he's talking about is like intramurals right and so in his mind but that's the same right he's talking about yeah. he played soccer at the university of cairo and what we're in our context we're like oh were you on the varsity team was it d1 who are you playing where you you know where are you guys headed so sport is something in terms of like you know taking it as a profession and moving into this as a profession even to this day having conversations with my pops even this week they're still just blown away that I've made a career out of sport, right? Mm. Like sport is just what you do for fun or recreation. You know what I mean? And so, and I think that's actually a really, not to go down this rabbit hole at the moment, but another, one of the things to unpack for us as practitioners in the space is when we fit, when we meet families in new sports, sometimes they, we don't get that. And then we punish kids who don't, who come from families like this and they don't like their family just may not understand this youth sports in America, which is this, seven, $8 billion industry now, right. Of professionalizing kids at a young age. And these kids are just coming from whatever country they're coming from South America, right. Africa, you know, wherever. And they're like, this sport's just for fun. And the family's like, Hey, I'm not coming to practice five days a week for your club. And I don't have $5,000 to pay for this semester's dues. And then we're like, Oh, well, they're not serious. 
sports. It's like, well, no, they just don't understand the context. So for me, sport was like something I always had to like sell my family on, right? You know, like this is what I'm doing. I'm like, hey, I want to be on the basketball team in high school. They were like, oh, great. You're going to go play basketball with your friends. And I'm like, no, I got to be at morning practice at 530, you know, three days a week. You know, this is what we're trying to do. And so, so really for me, sport started late, right? So we're talking, we're in a world now where everybody plays, we don't know, we get our kids and sports and stuff at eight, nine, 10 years old, right? I didn't really get into sport until I was a freshman in high school. That's where I was introduced to like more organized sport. And that's where the, and then and being on the basketball team and then, yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, competitive, I would say. Right. And so and that was with basketball, water polo, swimming kind of all came at it in high school. And then the experience just started from there. And yeah. Go a hundred different directions there. Well, where ahead. was high school, John? Temple city high school in the, in the, in the kind of the Pasadena area, which is one we were talking about when we said El Rancho earlier, kind of new too, because it was all, all kind of in the same, yeah, vicinity. But yeah, I, where I went to high school was Temple, Temple City High in, in that Pasadena, in the SoCal area. Yep. And what's the what's the ethnic demographic there? Ooh. At the time I was there, it was a, a growing Asian American Pacific Islander population. You know, uh, which I think now is the majority in in that area. That, that's, but I think when I was there it was it was predominantly white when I was there okay. with that growing. You know, so. You know, I think we were in the range of like, you know, 60, 70% white, but then in like 20, 30% AAPI, right? And so then everybody else was in the kind of smaller, smaller category at the end. But yeah. yeah. Got it. And then from high school, went to college. Yeah. What was your, yeah. What was your, I mean, through sport. That was yeah, sports started yeah. getting more serious. Yeah. So, you know, I really wanted to play basketball, right? Like a lot of us basketball is like, you know, that's what you watch on TV. That's what you see, right? That's what you want to be. But I was I was a six foot three basketball center in high school, right? So anybody who knows sports that that doesn't work, right? Like you could barely be a six three point guard these days, let alone the center, right? I like posting yeah, people up, crazy. up and and I I like banging inside, right? And kind of be, being a forward and things like that and a forward center. But a six three center in water polo kind of works, right? Like it's it's okay at least at a at least not at the Olympic level all the time, but like in a in a so I was I started swimming in high school and that's how I found water polo in the summer and then. I kind of focused on water polo in the middle and then I came back to basketball again at the end of, of my time in high school. But I realized if I wanted to play basketball in college, it was going to be at a, even a D3 or like, really, I was just going to walk on at a D3. That's the level of my basketball skill, but I was getting recruited by D1 water polo schools. You know what I mean? And so water polo was really more of where I uh, ended up taking it. And so I committed to play at University of California, Irvine, you know, for water polo, which at the time was a, a top four, top five program right in, in, in the country you know um i took a, i took an offer to go play there i didn't play all four years you know um there's probably another there's another there's several stories all in there right of just like not i got injured which would be something else we could talk about to especially to my my medical folks here yeah, let's know, talk right? about it. yeah i um well i think one i was over my head right i didn't have again my family had no idea about sports right so i didn't really have much guidance you know in this scenario i didn't have and we had a different i didn't come from a great high school program i had a different coach every year but someone should have told me like yeah you're getting recruited by the top you know some of the top water polo colleges but you're really more like a d2 d3 player or if you're going to play d1 go to this kind of other place right like i was going in and five of my teammates in my four years have gone on to play in the olympics you know olympic games and so i may be at that level as an administrator or coach or something right but i was not at that level athletically you know um and i'm more than okay saying that today you know 20 plus years later right but so i wasn't getting so i was in over my head so one of the things that competitive advantage that i tried to take as i could see you know to try to earn a spot is i just started lifting super heavy one summer i started doing olympic style lifting you know like you know cleans and jerks and squats and you know stuff that 
<laughs> stuff that's probably not recommended these days, uh, I would say as much. Or it should um, be led by a, a professional. Right, yeah, we were, dude, we were just, I mean, the coach would come in the weight room, open the door, and then be like, hey, go do some cleans and jerks. And, yeah, uh, after pick it. some stuff yeah. up and put it down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or drop it. <laughs> we had, our coach was amazing. He was like, uh, he has the most time in civil history. Coach Newland, you know, rest in peace. He, he passed a couple years ago at this point. But he, uh, you know, he his first weight room was out of his garage with like milk jugs filled with sand. You know what I mean? And he was like lead, leading the lifting that way too. So it was definitely unsupervised, just like go for it. And Anyway, I mean, this was like, I knew, hey, I got to try to make something of this. And so I tried lifting really hard in the summer, tried doing some Olympic lifting. And then I gave myself a, a hernia right at the time. That's what, so, and it was like right like a week before season started after I was done redshirting, you know, and, and stuff. And I was like, I got to, I'm going to try to make the travel squad and go. And I remember, and then just like, I remember again, doing, doing the workouts, my stomach started to hurt. And then I ended up like leaving, we were doing sit-ups and push-ups in the other room. And then I'm like, I go to the car, I'm like lying down in the back seat. Cause I was just feeling nauseous. I didn't even know what the F was going on. And my roommate came by to find me. He's like, Hey, what happened? What's wrong with you? And then he just looks down and there's just like this big bubble coming out of my, you know, under my stomach, right. And just like, it was just blown up in the emergency room and left. And then I remember calling um, coach from the, uh, from the, uh, from the, um, from the hospital, right. Before I was going to get my, my surgery. And I was like, coach, I got, I, I, you know, sorry, man, I gave myself a hernia lifting. It looks like, to be, you know, four to eight weeks, depending on how things heal up, I can be back in the pool kind of banging and then I would have missed that season. He looked at, oh, you know, in 30 plus years of coaching, that's never happened. I've never had somebody get one of those. Well, good luck. We got we got this guy named Jeff Powers coming up behind you. He looks pretty good. See you later. And then and then hung up and I was like, oh shit. Well this is what wow. D1 sports is like. Yeah, baby. Right? You know, like this is what it's like. And so yeah, talk about a culture of care around injuries. That was not what was happening at that time. So yeah. So let's let's yeah. we gonna rewind here. So it's a lot lifting. Back. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And your first thought was to go to your car. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then your teammate found you. And then they said, this doesn't look good. So then yeah. it was like, go to the hospital. So at no point yeah. in your conversation, did you mention anything about any sports medicine professionals that we commonly know of today, particularly working at a university like where you're at now? Yeah. So mm-hmm. where? Was there an athletic trainer involved? You know, talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only laughing because it's so many years have passed now, right? And there's yeah. a lot of like a lot of stuff that you can that you don't yeah. think about these details till you know, right? You don't know what you don't know. Right. You know what I mean? So at that moment, I'm just a kid trying to put on 15 pounds of muscle, right? So I can impress coach, so I can, you know, make make the rotation and just, you know, like I'm that, that's the job, right? I didn't think about these. The questions you're asking, Chris, I didn't think about yep. it, right? It's just, just kind of happened. Yep. But right now to think about it 20, whew, 25 years later, whatever it was, you know what I mean? Later to think about these things is is, is crazy. There was no, first of all, to, to, there was no strength and conditioning coach. Right? That's where we started. So we the lifting was unsupervised, right? So like that's, so this idea of even now, you know, having high school weight rooms around the country without anybody supervising appropriate lifting techniques that's still happening right like we still you can yep. still walk in them many away colleges too and just yep. see yep. the basketball Everywhere. coach a track coach and just yeah even colleges right and they're just like hey get stronger you know and go especially look and no one no offense to coach or like i was saying like that wasn't his thing was just like go and it yeah was bench press, everybody press, was doing it clean first right. squats it wasn't like yeah everyone's doing it. it's not like you know and he was there so a there was nobody supervising b you're talking about in terms of athletic trainers, I don't even know if I could tell you who our specific athletic trainer was that was like assigned to our team, but I knew that there was an athletic training room. And Got so 
I knew, but, but when we're lifting at like, you know, especially our program, we were notorious for lifting at like five 30 in the morning, you know, like starting coach would coach would get in there like four four thirty four himself. Right. This was kind of his like ethos. I was like what he did. Right. To tell you, I'm always going to be in the weight room before you guys. So when we were lifting at that early in the morning, you got to imagine the, the, the training, athletic training room was not open, right? right. It's not an open yeah, room. Not a priority. Time. Yeah. All yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. So I would imagine, I don't think we had athletic trainers in there till 8, 39 AM or something. You know what I mean? Like at, at that time. And so, so no, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I couldn't tell. I do remember going to athletic training room sometimes as an athlete to get like ice and stim, you know, okay, on stuff like that. Yeah. And then what about high school? Any, mm-hmm. anything there? Ooh, nothing, nothing. I couldn't tell you. Man, we were, we aren't even, uh, we were lifting weights, the same thing. Just go to the weight room, you know, get stronger. Sports medicine didn't exist. No, there was no sports medicine. We weren't traveling <laughs> still, with people, right? Yeah. It still doesn't exist yeah. at the high school level. Yeah. Yeah. In especially, places. Yeah. especially yes. in LA County. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then go to the hospital, you treat, you get your hernia treated. Was that the end of your water polo career? I mean, essentially as an athlete, right? Like yeah. when you, I didn't think it was, but when I called, coach and he didn't care much about it you know what i mean and you're on the fringe of the roster anyway anyway right yep. it doesn't take much for you to just get you know flick flicked out at the end right coach was like hey you know sorry to hear it's never happened to me before anyway we got all these other guys you know like we See were keeping around. roster of like 30 plus people and remember you know only seven people play at a time yeah you know 16 16 will travel you know and i'm um, somewhere in the in the 20s or something you know in the in the roster you get hurt it doesn't take much you know and, and so it really was an eye open that was the end of my kind of i guess like competitive playing career was was yeah. then because i didn't and i and i i did try to come back at one point you know what i mean but then like and there's so many you know so many things so many ways to describe it but kind of once your critical consciousness opens up a little bit right like i got on campus a little bit water polo was gone i started doing some other stuff and i was like man uh, you know, water polo could just be fun. Maybe it's just for fun. Maybe it yeah. isn't. Huh. It does, maybe it doesn't need to be competitive. You maybe know what Pops I mean? was right after all. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you, you start missing your head, and especially when I mean, there were a few years there where I was like pretty pissed at coach. Right. That's not how you deal with an injury. Right. The coach was like, "Facts. Hey, good luck. Yeah, good luck with that later." You know what I mean? Like that wasn't like, and I'm like, "Hey, you know, do I do I lose my? I had a little scholarship, right? I mean, am I losing my scholarship? Am I? You know what I mean? Like, what's like?" what's going to happen to me now, right? In this. And so I was, you know, of course, a little bitter and, and again, 19 years old, immature too. Right. I just, I decided, Hey, you know, yeah. That, so that injury, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of things that happened, but it, it was, yeah, well, that was kind of the end of it. And then, and then I rediscovered kind of this like kind of competitive water polo after I graduated, you know? So I spent a couple more years on campus, right. Graduated in four years, you know, which wouldn't have happened if I stayed playing, you know what I mean? And then started doing other things with the sport. Yeah. At Last is proud to announce that we have teamed up with Raincross High Performance and Thorn to support athletes from underserved communities. If you purchase supplements through the Raincross High Performance Dispensary via Thorn, you can receive a 35% discount on products purchased. Not only does Raincross offer the highest discount possible to their performers, but 100% of the profits from their dispensary will go to initiatives supporting athletes from underserved communities via At Last. If you're looking for high quality products from omega-3s to vitamin D, go to www.thorn.com forward slash U forward slash Raincross HP to receive 35% and support our cause. So fast forward to you at Bucknell University, you're coaching 
head coach yeah. of the water polo team, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the racial diversity of the athletic training staff at Bucknell? What year was that? Mm. And what was kind of the ethnic, cultural, racial makeup of athletes at Bucknell at that time? Yeah. I'm going to have to think about it. That's a good question. Let me meditate on that as, 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 as I get to it. Because coming from Southern California to where Bucknell is, and for people who don't know where Bucknell is, right, it's in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. So that's in the middle of Pennsylvania. That's not near Pittsburgh. That's not near Philly, right? This mm-hmm. is in like the middle of like the ninth largest state in the union, you know? So like there's nothing there, right? Nothing, nothing there except the university. And so, yeah, look, for me, you know, getting out there, it's definitely a predominantly white university, which then is reflected in athletics, right? You know, it's reflected in the staffing, you know, it's uh, the ethnic background staff. I think it was predominantly white, but I do remember that one of the trainers, it was definitely all predominantly white, but the one trainer that I worked with the most that became good friends was actually a Romanian immigrant that found his way there. And as you can probably imagine some, you know, us who come from similar kin, right? We all kind of find each other and spent some time together. But yeah, it was a Romanian, Iranian, Iranian guy named Andre, you know, spent a lot of time with us who's who moved to the States, you know, just a few years before that, you know? Yeah. But, you know, as a university itself, Bucknell is like 80 something percent white, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you can, I don't know what that translates to athletics wise, but it was pretty, you know, not that now would be the same if you generally, a lot of the people of color on campus were in athletics. Right. And so you'd find them, you find them there. Yeah. But it's an interesting place, man. Bucknell was a suit when it comes to race and diversity and just like, like identity, Bucknell was a really interesting place to be for sure. And I think it's it's telling too that okay, there was an athletic trainer there, and you were able to establish some relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And I, I, we talk about this a lot, like how rep. This is an example of why representation matters, right? Like you were able to yeah. see somebody who yeah. looked like you, close similar to you, and probably assumed they might have had some similar experiences as you, and then. Some of that probably got affirmed as you guys started talking and the psychological safety started to go away or increase, I should say. And then you guys were able to share Mm -hmm. more vulnerably and start to really see a lot of the commonality you have. And then therefore that led to you developing a, a deeper relationship with this person and then able to learn more about this person and their role and, you know, just your experience and exposure to the 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 world of sports medicine, right? Like, yeah, oh, not, for sure. Not just sports medicine, but you got to understand it in a way, and a lot more, in a much more intimate way than some may have, right? Because of the the personal relationship that you had with the person. Yeah, there's no doubt. It was a, it was a pretty intersection, you know, in there where we got to learn a little bit about each other. I mean, even little things because you're talking about like I was a young man at that time, just living alone across the country, and you're talking about like, hey, I need help moving furniture. I need help, like. I'm now now talking about this. I had forgotten some of these things, but just like yep. helping each other out, moving stuff, like building building a the dresser, you know, yep. needed. You're by yourself, and like you know, you you develop like kind of this sort of like relationship and kinship in a, in a strange land, right? In a place where like it was hard to find people that look like you, talk like you, or anything. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I'll give you an example. I got that. I, I landed. I got to Lewisburg, and you know, within the first week of being there, I was just looking for some like, Hey, where can I get my haircut? You know? And I, I had hair at the time. So this is a different story. Right. But like, Hey, I just need, and I'm like simple, you know, just like a little mini curly Egyptian hair. Right. I just need some, I just need a buzz cut. Right. Someone just kind of buzzed me down. This is real simple. Someone's like, well, I'll just go downtown. There's a barbershop there. I'm sure they'll take care of you. Super. You know what I mean? 
Um, no, just this, this is Lewisburg, man. There's no chains, right? I mean, Lewisburg when, when cuts. Mal- yeah, yeah. When, when Walmart came to town, it was like a big deal, right? There was like, no I Z think- at the end. It was <laughs> yeah, an S. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a local local dude with the the swirly thing outside said, so come in, you know, and I'm like, hey, can you just cut my hair? And he was like, Yeah, I'm not sure, you know? And I'm like, uh, no, listen, man, you got clippers, dog. I just I just moved to town. Like I literally just moved to town. Like I had nothing. I don't even own my own pair of clippers. I can't come. I own nothing. Just like hey, shave my head. Can you shave my head? And he's like, no, we don't do that here. You know? And I'm like, dog, I just need, like, I'm going to pay you money, right? To do the easiest haircut of your life. You know, so I told him, like, this is super easy. I need five minutes, right? right. Just clean me up so that I you can look good this. for my first day. The you first the day capacity. Of work tomorrow. Yeah, you got yeah, this, like, man. I'm going to meet my team tomorrow for the first time. Like, I just don't want to look messy, right? Can you give me a clock? And he's like, we don't do that on here. You may need to get to Philly or something for that. And I go, oh, word, like Philly, huh? Like, what, what oh. do you mean? He's like, no, we don't shave heads around here. Like, we don't do that around here. You need to get to Philly. And I'm like, I didn't know what he meant at that time, right? Yeah. You can pick up what yeah. I'm putting down, right? He's like, <laughs> and then what? and then he was like, and then I'm like, well, listen, can I borrow your clippers? Can I, like, what can you do? And he's like, <laughs> can I rent them? The yeah, 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 You know? Um, yeah. I'm like, because it's not that hard. It's, you know, I need a number one or a number two, right? And just over my head. He's like, go to Walmart and buy some Nair. Oh, God. It's not a joke. He said, go buy some Nair. And if you put the Nair on your head, it'll burn that off. And then you'll have a shaved head and you'll be good and you'll be good to go. You can just burn off because we don't we don't do that around here, you know. And by the way, he's not even making eye contact with me at this time. You know what I mean? He's not looking at you know what I mean? Like he's he's kind of doing this to the side and could barely barely talk to me. And again, I had a hard time processing this because like I'm just off the flight. I'm like, I just moved across the country. I'm trying to like fresh. Yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to live. Right. You know, I just moved in this place. So it's really just using some context about like what the city was like you know what i mean and then again just kind of kicked me out the door was like hey you know we don't we don't do this and and my foolishness that i went i bought nair you know what i mean that's how much we internalize these things i went to the thing i'm like i don't know what nair is i don't know man i used to just cut my own hair I barber says so. my hair whatever yeah. you know yeah barber said so i'm just trusting these folks and like next thing i know like i'm burning my my scalp and i'm figuring all this out on my own and that's when you know from that point on i i've been cutting my own hair since to answer your question, I think Adam, you asked what years was where that was like 2005 to 2010 or something, you know, like those years around then. So, you know, this barber um, was white. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. In, in, in case our listeners, in case our listeners are still trying <laughs> yeah. to connect the dots. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there were other white folk in there. There were three people in there, you know, total, and none of them could make eye contact with me and look at me. Sure. Jeez. You know, or even like offer another opinion. They're just like, yeah, you know, Philly's only a couple hours away. I was like, oh, okay. You know, I'll just go to Philly then, you know, and find a barbershop of my kind there, you know, and uh, go from there. But yeah. that was my introduction hours after I landed. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, uh, within a day of being at that university, you know, Sheesh. which is barometer yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, for what was expected. <laughs> level, yeah, to understand. Yeah. So that's the demogra- that's mm-hmm. the physical location you're in. Mm-hmm. And then you enter into the world of a sport where it was probably similar to like you walking into that barbershop in in a lot of ways, at least on the surface, where you are the least or the only or the first that many have ever seen of your kind. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about just your experience coaching in a predominantly white sport as not just as a colored folk in America now on the surface, but then as an Egyptian, we undressing you, dog. Yeah. 
thought we were going to talk about systems. We go get there. Like, we go get you know, there. We go about get me. There. Yeah, we, you know. Just, <laughs> I thought we were going outwards. This is yeah. like, this feels like the, I'm in the confessional right now. You oh, know what man. I mean? Beyond, beyond the wall. But uh, let's let's get to that soon. It was tough. It was tough, man. It was not. I wouldn't say it was tough. Like it was like people. You know, I don't want people to misinterpret like it was like hard. But you know, one of the things in water polo in general, generally speaking, is how and that I think I'm coming to terms with now as we get older is just how accepting and loving white people can be to you when you offer something to them that they need and a service that you're providing to them that benefits them. Mm -hmm. Right. So I was really passionate about what I was doing. I wouldn't say I was good at what I was doing, but I tried really hard. You know what I mean? I was always there. I was attentive, you know, I was attentive to their kids. I was attentive to their, to their needs. I was pushing them. I was teaching. I was inspiring. I love teaching. You know what I mean? And so like these folks, folks like i just felt like they felt like hey you're you're with us you know what i mean you, you feel like you don't think twice about like well i'm coaching in a group you know to it to a group of athletes that that's predominantly white and when i say predominantly it's like 99 I, I don't i don't in my time at bucknell oof, it's gonna be hard it's hard for me to i could think of the one or two athletes of color right that i coached on my teams you know when i was very few you know and so it's it's a scenario that you don't think about a lot when you're in the moment but then when right. you take a step back Right. You think, you think back, about it yeah. a lot, you know? Yeah. Because I think for them, they're getting something out of the deal, right? They're getting something out of the deal. And then it's hard, it's hard for them to think about like, you know, what is, what's your life experience like in Lewisburg? So like a lot of times when I would say something or make a crack about like what I was dealing with living in Lewisburg to the, to the, to the athletes or the parents or the people, it would kind of just like, gla- it would glaze over them. Right. Or it would go right by them. Cause they're just like, well, I don't really know. Well, okay. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Right. Sorry to hear you got pulled over yesterday. Right. Sorry to hear. Right. That like, you know, these things are happening. You know, I love, I love this story because it's because we could, it could throw light on the situation again. We could laugh about these things now, but you know, two, two things happened to me there that, that, that I think are interesting. And it would be also interesting for medical professionals who are working on college campuses to understand if they're doing if some, something similar happened to them. But within the first two weeks of me working at Bucknell university, yeah, I'm not an athlete. I'm just a coach. I'm, and by the way, I got there as the, the, to be really nuanced. I, I got there as the assistant coach. So the first year and a half I was there, I was the assistant coach before I became the head coach. I'm just an assistant water polo coach. Within two weeks, I'm on the cover of the website of admissions, right? So like you go to the admissions. I didn't even know this, right? I was doing my recruiting job. I'm in my oh, you didn't know you were right on, the, on the site? And I had no idea, right? But I was going, I went to the admissions website to find out some information from a recruit, right? Like I'm doing my job and recruiting as the assistant coach. And I click on, you know, bucknell.edu. I go to the admissions, scroll down. And then there's this picture of me with a whistle in my mouth, blowing a ball, like pointing like this, like on the deck. And I'm like, and this is like front page admissions. And I'm like, what the, what am I doing? I've been working here for two weeks. I'm the assistant water polo. I'm the assistant basketball coach, football coach, but you know what I mean? Like this is water polo right? We're in the pool by ourselves over here. Somebody came, took a picture of me. I don't even remember when. And it's on the, it's on the admissions website now. So they could say, Hey, look, there's people of color. On this. Yeah. You know, look, check it out. Right. We got one, right. We got one. It's, you know, somehow, but we got one and he's here, you know, yep. and let me, let me show you what's up. You yep. know? And, uh, and it's and on I, the admissions my, page, not admissions. anywhere else, not core values page, not about us. It's on the admissions joint. And not on, you know, there's bucknell.edu and then there's bucknellbison.com, right? Or like like any place like the athletics website. I'm like, oh, okay. On the athletic website, maybe there's like a hired new assistant coach, da, da, da. I'm on the admissions page, you know? And I'm like, this is a real trip. And it really started getting me, I mean, this starts messing with my head, right? Then you talk about the barbershop experience. You start talking 
uh, some other micro, every microaggression I'm feeling in the first few weeks of being there. The house that I, the first place I rented in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania was an old colonial home. It's an old town, right? Small, I think small town America, Lewisburg, PA, small town America. I was living in this like side kind of house, like this big colonial home. And they were renting a room for a hundred dollars a month. It's how you make safe money at that time, but only hundred bucks a month, right? Where you walk these stairs up at the back of the house and it's basically like a studio apartment. I found out like a month of, after living in the house that that was the slave quarters of the of the colonial home that it was in, you know. So then this is like my first month. So now I'm sleeping in my you know in the in the slave quarters of the former slave quarters, <laughs> this colonial home. My pictures on the website, you know, just daily microaggressions. I'm thinking couldn't myself, get a where, haircut. Yep. Where am I right now? You know, like what is going? Like what's going on? You know what I mean? Like this place is a trip. And then. The other thing that I, again, I'd be curious what other people had dealt with in in this time is then they were like, when the time after a year and a half time came to promote me, promote me to head coach, they asked me over the phone, they offered me the job over the phone. And I was like, yeah, I'll accept. That sounds great. And they said, great. Well, the press release is going to come out tomorrow. We'd love you know get a quote from you. We're going to announce, we're going to announce you as the head coach tomorrow. We also want you to know that you're the first uh, person of color to ever hold a head coaching position at Bucknell University in the history of the athletic department. And I was like, a word, you know? I was like, where? But hasn't this university been around since 18, you know, <laughs> 76 or something the like that? You know, like, <laughs> and, uh, I'm your I'm the first person of color that you guys are hiring. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to, we'd love to promote that. Or, do you feel comfortable with that? I was 27 at the time. I go, no. I said, I'm not comfortable with that. Please leave that off. You know, looking back, I may have addressed that differently. You know what I mean? Again, yeah, sure. You know, almost 20 years later, you know, maybe I'm I think about that differently. But you know, at that time, again, all these experiences leading up to you know, to that moment, we're in my head going like, no, you can't talk about that. You know, like you're, that's not okay for you to talk about. Leave that off. I got this Fatigue. job because I'm a good water polo coach and, you know, let's leave it at that. You know, yep. so Adam, real. you asked a loaded question, bro. Glad. Obviously your West coast experience was drastically different before you arrived to Lewisburg PA. So how would you be prepared to handle all that? I mean, there's, there's no possible way you could be. Yeah. And look, I don't, I'm not saying it was like really tough for like my experience as a high school athlete, my experience as a college athlete, as a high school coach, race was always at the forefront of everything I did. I mean, I always understood my identity and and how race affected my interactions with my students, with, again, with, you know, law enforcement, all those things, right? We can go into all those scenarios where race becomes the first thing people see and in terms of identity when you, when you walk into a room. But it was the first time in a long time that it was the first time in my life that I felt alone. And then I felt like the spotlight was on it, right? Like mm-hmm. it was like, this is, and that answers both your questions, right? Well, what's it like to coach in a predominantly white sport? It's like, well, I kind of was okay with it until someone decided to put like a flashlight, you know, spotlight around me and say, no, we're going to, you have to think about this now, right? The, you, this is, if this is not, if you're not thinking about this or doing something about it or addressing this way, you know, you're missing the boat. And that's when it really started was that buck now for sure. Yeah. Springbok Analytics is proud to support Atlas in their mission to improve equity across sports medicine. Springbok's all-powered technology transforms MRI images into 3D digital twins of your patient, giving you precise, objective data to inform your rehab and training programs. Go to springboktech.com to get your analysis today and mention Atlas for a 20% discount. Man, it's one thing to not have the the sports medicine support and things mm-hmm. like that at all but then if you have it 
and and it's folks that aren't they don't look like you. Chances are they wouldn't have similar experiences as you to be able to identify. Then it's like, how do they even relate to some of the things that you have to deal with? It it really mm-hmm. just heightens the importance of one athletic trainers, but then also not just athletic trainers, but diverse athletic trainers, ethnically diverse, you know, gender, all of those things, right? Because we could extrapolate some of these same things and issues and microaggressions that you're dealing with, specifically with ethnicity, to Mm -hmm. a variety of other disparities that we see in other ways that Mm -hmm. discrimination and all the other isms, you know, sexism Mm -hmm. and all these other isms take place, you know? So we can, so we'll pivot a little bit now and start to talk about having the athletic trainer or the sports medicine professional in a place like this. Your story helps illustrate, and many others too, helps illustrate what it's like, just the gaps, right? Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. we're able to then be able to see how athletic trainers can be some of these gap fillers on a variety of levels. The most obvious one is someone would have been around to help with your sports hernia. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And help you yeah. progress through that. And you potentially still could have been playing, even regardless of what the coach, how right. he treated you, right? Because right. due to his ignorance at the time, and again, that's no shot at him, right? I don't yeah. know the person. But yeah. for you and many others, they just think, oh, my career's done. Like, I'm done, right? right. We had we had uh, Reggie we had Reggie on and he talked about his story right for NFL he was an athletic trainer head athletic trainer and 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 uh, sports VP of sports medicine for the Rams right mm-hmm. Super Bowl Super Bowl champs he was talking about his his experience coming up when he had an injury in high school again didn't have an athletic training professional around or whatever and it was like yo a drastic injury this means the end of this is it I don't ever play again right you know yeah. and so so we see these gaps right. right? It, it it just illuminates how important filling these gaps are with and filling them with the right people. Let me touch on those gaps, Chris, because yeah, yeah. a huge aspect of the gaps you're mentioning is mental health for all individuals mm-hmm. mentioned, but particularly the athletes. And if you have a diverse staff, they have different experiences. So then their relationship to those athletes is different and measured and purposeful and provides so much benefit. We're seeing right now, you know, since pandemic rates of anxiety and depression doubling in our society. And so athletes at all levels are experiencing significant toxic stress. And the importance of the, the sports medicine provider cannot be understated at all levels, not for, like you were saying, just the physical aspect, but someone who has had a lot of these experiences that we've talked about to then say, hey, I understand you. I can empathize and sympathize with you. And I want to then implement some things to help improve your mental health or literally just like, I'm available for you to talk to. Not not just for the human aspect, right? Like everything I basics. Yeah. (laughs) This is basic, right? However, Mental health risks reduce performance in athletics. They lead to more injury. They reduce academic performance if we're talking about student athletes and, mm-hmm. and they have negative effects on social relationships and self-esteem. And so this is, these, these are facts. This is not like Adam's opinion. I, I just wanted to highlight the mental health piece of everything we've talked about 
And we as sports medicine professionals at all levels need to be better at mental health and learn more about it and do more screening and, and more intervention. Yeah. 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 I, I would just say even the relationship base, like the basis of good mental health on teams, a lot of times, or not the basis of it, but one of the avenues of it is just good, positive relationships with an adult on a team, especially if you're a young person, right? So here I am, 19 years old. Their only relationship that mattered on the team was the head coach, right? And the old school way of high performance thinking was like, well, the coach is everything. The coach is the, the team psychologist. The, the, the coach is, the, yep. is, the, is, the, is everything, the right? They're the trainer, they're the, yeah. <laughs> they're the strength and conditioning coach, right? Yep. They have everything, right? We put everything all into the head coach. They need to know SNC. They need to know ATC work. They need to know SNC work. They need to know psych, psych work and all those things. And just, Adam, what you're saying is really important is that that relationship could have helped me quite a bit on a personal level. And then if I extra, you extrapolate that generally to everyone, just having someone to talk to, there's a great clip y'all probably saw like the last maybe two nights ago where Draymond Green was talking about his uh, ATC or PT that helped him get mm. through his most recent injury. If you haven't seen this, I, I, I encourage it. But okay, yeah. But he went on in the press conference after his first game back. Right, Draymond was out for a long time. First game back, long injury. He spent two minutes talking about giving thanks to the person who helped him heal from his injury. Right, the person who had to go away from his family to be with him. In with his family, right, with Draymond's family, living with him, taking care of him, right, knowing these things. And this is the work of the ATCs, the PTs, the people who are like, service you know, providers. the team docs, the service yeah. providers who are with him. And Draymond talked about it for two minutes. And when you hear him talk about this, he's not talking about a guy who just, you know, performed a service on him. He's talking about a relationship that is built that will no. never die, right? That that's a relationship that he has now for life. He even says that this is now a person that I will have a positive relationship for the rest of my life with because of that. Now, that relationship. For, for Draymond, even at the most professional level in his late 20s, early 30s, wherever old Draymond is, right? Right now, right? How important it is. Now take that to someone who's 17, someone who's 15, someone who's even 20, right? Is going through this. That relationship is massive, 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 massive. And to have someone else who's cheering for you, rooting for you, supporting you, and understand that is it, it's a big deal. Man, yep. that excites me because now knowing mm -hmm. the roles and the influence that you now have, John. So, you know, player, mm -hmm. coach. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of move through the ranks after your coach. I mean, I don't, you don't never stop coaching once you start coaching, right? But the way you spend your time predominantly starts to shift. And you're in this administrative role. You're in a, you, you're sitting at some of these tables where uh, high levels of influence happen and can kind of trickle down. You're at a spot where you can kind of, you have more power to call some shots and influence some things. So I think you would have some good things to offer our listeners, even if majority of them are service providers, practitioners, athletic trainers, you name it. But speaking as an administrator in terms of how you take your experiences as an athlete and as a coach in America, where people are still experiencing a lot of the same things that you've experienced, if not worse. Sure. Speak to us and our listeners just about Maybe things that, that you do and that others can do who are in similar positions as you, and then how people in our position as athletic trainers could support that work or influence that work. I think, I think this is really important. This is why I think it's actually really cool what you, what you, what you all are doing and, and learning a little bit more about it yesterday and kind of understanding the mission of what you, you're trying to do at, at, at last here is important because you're you're looking at the intersectionality of these things because you're not just speaking to service providers in the sense of like, 
in an echo chamber, like let's all just get better at are the technical right. skills that are required yeah. to become. When really we do an ACL injury eval, just mm-hmm. be mindful of the culture that you're talking to. I mean, that's a part of right. it, right? But yeah, man, like that's just like one hundred percent, one hundred percent. And this is something that I feel like I've I've really been meditating on a lot in the last like year, right? Especially right, and a lot of these things since since COVID is this understanding that that technical skill development that you j- just described, right, is um, the technical skill that you just described is important, right? All of us as, you know, as a, as a water polo coach, I need to learn water polo skills. As an ATC, I need to learn my my skills. As a, you know, strength and conditioning coach, I need to get better. My, you know, the, there's, but there's a threshold of technical skill and a threshold of technical knowledge that you get to that without any cultural competency, cultural humility, right, or understanding of any of the intersections of the people you're serving are, you've maxed out that threshold or you blast the threshold technical skill that doesn't matter anymore yeah right like it just doesn't matter anymore how much you know about that acl injury and the therapy needed to recover from the acl this just doesn't matter right, right. at some point you need to understand the people who you are treating right yep. and you need to be able to and be able to understand where they're coming from and deal with them and and give them care so as an administrator i got to make sure that when i'm hiring that i'm mm. not, not hiring on the basis of technical skill and that's what's important for your service but people who are listening just understand Man, is that I'm I'm hiring you. I'm going to be one of the people. Like one day, I'm going to have to fill more medical positions at in my job here or wherever else <laughs> I'm working. When you come in and you want to talk to me about all the technical skill and knowledge that you have, you know, I'm at a point where I'm like, I just need to know that you know you know your stuff um, at a at a at a certain threshold. Certainly at our level, there's the threshold raises Higher. right. The threshold is lower yep. at a high school or college or something right. But you're working with Olympic athletes. I need to know you've reached this threshold. Beyond that, right? I don't care how much you know. I just need to know that you're willing to work on developing those skills, right? That you have a growth mindset. You have a growth mindset and those things will grow. Beyond that, are you the right fit? You know, do you have the cultural humility to be able to walk in and be able to understand kind of where these things are at? I think that's important for your, for your listeners to hear. And I say this because I say this to coaches a lot. Like I've done interviews and podcasts like this before about coach, like coaching, where it's the same thing, right? Coaches will say, I want to tell you how much I've won. And this is how much I know. And dude, I have like nine championships. I'm like, I could give for shit about all these championships, right? If you can't come into the room, and right? And win some humans. the room over. Because, yeah. Yeah. There's a point where experience doesn't, like it only means so much, right? Yeah. Your experiences and all those things only, only mean so much. And so we need to, on that side, on the flip side, if you are in a position where you can be helpful, I think one of the most powerful things that I was able to do in my position was actually, and I'm not just saying this because he's in the room, right? But in 2015, so I got the job, this job at U.S. Water Polo late 2013. It's called early 2014. We were using part-time ATCs at the time. We were just using whoever could come help the team. And this is, by the way, the Olympic gold medal winning women's team, right? A men's team that won the silver medal just a few years prior to that. And we're like, you know, whenever this ATC could come on, let's use them. Or like, you know, we'll just borrow the trainer from Long Beach State or we'll borrow the trainer at Stanford can come travel with us, right? That's how we were treating sports medicine when I took the job. And I was like, not the, is, <laughs> not the best model. <laughs> On a lot of levels. For, it's not for your national Olympic team, yeah. right? For Olympic teams. You know, it's not just any, it's, yeah, yeah. It's not sustainable on a business level either, right? Because you're just constantly turning over and looking at like, let alone the care of the athlete. And so in 2015, one of my first one of the first things I really wanted to do was create full-time sports medicine manager positions, right? So Chris Bates is actually only the second person to ever hold that title for USA Water Polo, right? We hired some in 2015. They person left shortly after the 2016 Olympics. Or, and then we, Chris and I, we found each other through the system, right? And, yeah. and hired him in this position. But I, I can tell you that the feedback that I got from the athletes over the years is like, 
telling not not that it's not just that hey chris bates is great marnie bequeren on the women's side these are great people that you hire john oh my god thank you for bringing those specific people and yeah i hear that about those people but the underlying message that they're sending to me as an administrator is you cared this much about my health and my well-being by making sure and you backed it with your dollars by saying you needed full-time help to care about me physically and personally in that way. You know, that's the message that, that, that is being sent. So anytime that we can think about these things at an administrative level, we have to be thinking about how can we make sure that people are dedicated full-time to the, to, to the health and care of the people that you're serving, right? Because when it, it speaks volumes when it's the opposite, right? Imagine when you're in that situation yeah. and that, and it's, it is ad hoc or part-time or, you know, it's, it's pieced together. The me- it may not be explicitly communicated, but believe me, the message is being received that you don't care about me that much. Yeah. I was going to say something simple, like when I, on one of my first days was not just providing water, but I just put some ice in the water. We're in Southern California mm-hmm. where we were practicing. So it's hot. And it was like a normal thing for me. I didn't expect the, the response that I got, but I was like a hometown hero. <laughs> and I was like, bro, this is easy. <laughs> so part of my job, I was like, oh man, I could do this. This is easy work. Obviously, you had to turn it up, right? But the initial, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it yeah, just yeah, it showed yeah. the disparity and the discrepancy, even at one of the highest levels of sport, you know, that so many of us can assume are all well put together and all buttoned up. But these gaps exist in all areas of life and at all levels of sport, you know? And, and so, yeah, man, to that point of just like service and care, you know, like I didn't become the hero and, and, and become a trusted advocate to these players because they knew how well I could evaluate a shoulder or how good of a strength and conditioning program I could put together for them. It was just because it was like, this dude gave us cold water. You know, <laughs> there's much more than that, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. But now, so, point. but now it's like now there I can relationship. Yeah, I can trust him to like know. Oh, he cares for me at a very fundamental level. So for sure, he's going to care about some of these right. bigger issues. No, no doubt. And I think that's. I mean, but that's the messaging that that athletes need to perform at a high level, right? Like, and then you start talking about why aren't we winning? And I think that's another mistake administrators make. A lot is then they we kind of again we keep going and I'm not trying to diminish the role of the head coach it's incredibly important oh, right. but most of the time you know you got to have a good leader at, at the head coach. I mean it's 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 vital but when you're looking for answers to in the gaps of performance if you're looking for performance gaps and you're trying to understand why are there performance gaps in what we're doing or why are there gaps in 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 the things that we're doing it's not always about the head coach, right? It's going to be about a lot of other factors as well, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't care how good of a head coach you are. Uh, you can't coach a team that's injured all the time, right? You can't coach a team that doesn't have a certain level of, of fitness or conditioning that comes with strength and conditioning that comes with it. You can't coach a team that isn't provided for at any, that's hungry all the time and isn't well fed, <laughs> right? Like yeah. you got to think about these things. Like I think about a lot of times I think about performance and it's like the you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, go. right? Yeah. Like you're not ever going to reach self-actualization if you haven't met belonging needs, safety needs, basic needs, right? Those things need to be met. And all of a sudden we try to look at teams and we look at systems and we come in and we go, well, how do we just get to this top of like being a self-actualized athlete or team without thinking, well, like, look, these guys are hungry. <laughs> these guys are, are drinking warm water while they're doing their, their conditioning sets. These guys are, they're going to McDonald's after practice so because there's no food on deck. You know what I mean? Like, those are some basic fundamental things that need to be met before you can say, well, the head coach is doing a bad job. 
right? Yeah. The head right. coach is doing a good That's job good. Or, or, or whatever, right? Like when you think about these things, like it's, it's important that you care about the holistic athlete. You know? Yep. You know, one mm-hmm. way we refer to this is the biopsychosocial model. You'll find that uh, there's a lot of practitioners, sports medicine mm-hmm. providers, you name it. We're good in the bio for sure. Mm-hmm. We're in the good, mm-hmm. at the bio part of that biopsychosocial. Some are even good at the psycho part of things, right? Especially mm-hmm. now with the prevalence of mental health and sure. mental wellness. But the social piece is probably still the biggest gap that we are missing in our profession, probably many mm-hmm. professions, but especially ours, right? Because we're so, it, which is, it, it, it makes sense, right? I'm not, I'm not diminishing anything because, you know, our profession, we need to know about the biology and the science and all of that about mm-hmm. how injuries and all of that stuff work. And then the psychology behind that. But mm-hmm. the social piece is often, it, there's just not enough credit given to it, you know, and I think maybe it's growing. And that's part of why we have people like you on our show and many others, if you check our catalog of guests, mm-hmm. where it's not just like, oh man, we've got the leading expert on this rehab or, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, yeah, that's cool. But mm-hmm. that that part's being ticked, man. I, I don't have to go to another conference and attend another seminar or workshop on 10 ways to improve your special tests for this <laughs> joint, right? Yeah. Those are cool, right? Keep those up because there are people no coming that need to learn those things, right? But if that's what's dominating our conferences and stuff, this so it's like, all right, well, we, we're going to try to promote different voices from our perspective, right? So we're going to have the high perform- chief high performance officers on here talking about the biopsychosocial model and highlighting more of the psycho and even more so the social piece and how it influences Ultimately, what we're going to do at the bio level, right? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and actually see these athletes having better health and wellness. And I've got now relationships with the athletes and I can communicate with them better and get more compliance with them. So if I'm asking them to do something, even if they're overseas, there's compliance happening, you know, and we can care for right. them and, and serve them well. MedBridge provides evidence-based courses, unlimited CEUs, home exercise programs featuring 6,000 plus exercises and more. Use promo code THEADVANTAGE, that's T-H-E-A-T-V-A-N-T-A-G-E, to get an annual MedBridge subscription. So so along the lines of the psychosocial model, portion of the model, Mm -hmm. John Abdu is the co-chair of USA Water Polo's task force on racial equity and reform. John, tell us about some initiatives or goals that you have with that task force for your own athletes, but also, mm-hmm. you know, in a broader picture. Yeah, for sure. You know, again, a lot of things have happened in the last couple of years, right? And a lot of, uh, a lot of things have been brought to the forefront. It's, I think a building of a collective critical conscious, hopefully, right? Of people to understand where, where their impact can be. You know, it can start with the racial equity and reform task force we started. You know, you could go right into just talking about like the very micro level of like, well, there isn't that much representation of uh, people on our national teams, you know, athletes on our national teams, people of color, all those things. Where, and it may have started with some of that, you know, juice may have started with some of that, especially from some of the, you know, Olympians of color of the, uh, of USA Water Polo who started with this, like, well, hey, Rely. This is this is a time now for us to talk about this. Yeah. I'm the only one. Right? There's only a few of us. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, my voice fruit. is going to be heard. Right. 
And that was vital to this. So shout out to, to those pioneers, right, who really kind of laid, laid the groundwork of, or not, not laid the groundwork, but they, they started the fire, right, like and opening the door. But where that led and where it's led me now, I think, in the past two years is to go from that micro of the individual relationship in the sport to the macro sense of like, well, where does our organization fit into racial equity and how can we be helpful? in trying to bridge this gap. And where that has taken me, even to, the, to this very present moment, what I was working on this morning in a conference I'm speaking out next week, is the public health crisis of the racial disparity in drowning rates amongst people of color in America. So I just went from like, hey, there's only two black men that ever played on the men's national team in the Olympic <laughs> water polo to, right, we have this public health crisis. Like, obviously, there's a ton of stuff in between, yeah, right? Yeah. How many on the women's side, right? by the way? Ashley is uh, one. Ashley's the first African-American first. female, right? But right. then, you know, Brenda, Brenda Villa, who was the co-chair with me, right? Patty Cardenas, right? So only a few on, on the women's side, right? Like women of color who have, have made it through. But the reason why I think I don't want to get lost in all the trees here in the middle. The reason we jumped to this, especially I think relevant and talking on a medical professional podcast as well, is that drowning is a public health crisis in the United States. Learning to swim in my view, is a fundamental human right. It's a fundamental educational right that is denied to many people in this country, right? Mm-hmm. And so that leads to, like drowning is the number two cause of death amongst kids ages like 15 to 22. If I have my numbers right, and I'm gonna get them right at the water safety uh, convention or summit I'm at next week too, right? I think it's the leading cause of death, right? From the ages of, in, in tod- amongst toddlers in America. The drowning is the leading cause of death, right? And then when you take those numbers and you go even further down into it, there's a disproportionate amount of those deaths by drowning are people of color, kids of color, right? So we're going to it's within the top five causes of death for men over 40, right? In, in America, right? Like we're talking about even men, older men who never learned to swim in their life, right? And then find themselves just where they're drowning. Now, what does that have to do with water polo? What does that have to do with the racial equity task force? You know, I mean, at USA Water Polo is what that means is for us. Everything. If we are in a space where we can help affect that, right, and encourage people to be water safe and encourage people to be to develop these skills and to put themselves in a position where they're, they're water comfortable, water safe, and they can break the generational causes and like, you know, barriers that have kept them from learning, learning how to swim, then we can save lives. So, yeah. uh, you know, we can focus on, on the, the micro, but to me, the macro becomes the most important part of this because it's, it's, it's. Gentlemen, it's mind blowing when you take this and look at America, at how many people don't know how to swim. Forget race. Without race as a factor, 52% of Americans don't know how to swim. Mm. Without race as a factor. And then within those 52%, the numbers are disproportionate. And that's in America. I've been spending, spending some time talking about people internationally about this. You're talking about islands, like on the island, you can, this is a quick Google search away, but like the island of Barbados and the island of Bermuda, where you're talking about like, you know, predominantly you know, black communities, right. Who live on a place that's surrounded by water who don't know how to swim, right. Like 80% of the population does not swim. So there's a lot to unpack in that sense. And so what my goal in life, like new goal in the last two years, and I really want to affect is just like, how can we use water polo, right. To help people become water safe, right. To help curb these drowning rates, to help curb, you know, this lack of water safety in our communities, which will inevitably lead to the micro outcomes that we're looking for. Absolutely. More people know how to 
So if, more, if we break down these Ooh. barriers early on, then over time, yes, we will see more representation at these places, Playing right? In the but, sport, right? Yeah, we're, it, it's just a matter of, of time that's and a, breaking those barriers down. That's a, that's such a great bridge. Yes. Teach people to swim so you have public health impact, and then byproduct they're is still alive representation <laughs> so that they can bend. Yeah, yeah. But representation in sport. This the CDC has. Uh, I looked at morbidity yeah. and mortality weekly report as you brought this up, John. And yeah, yeah. The disparity is in comparison to non-Hispanic whites, American right. Indian or Alaskan natives have two times the rate mm-hmm. drowning rate in comparison to whites and non-Hispanic black individuals have 1.5 times higher rate in comparison to whites drowning. Yeah. yeah. That's huge. And, and, in, and in some context, I heard a physician researcher a few months ago compare very similarly rates of suicide, like motor vehicle accidents, death in, he, he essentially compared zero to like 18 years old. Mm. And those rates were so much higher than rates of death from COVID. The point was compare it to our current pandemic because we're in such an uproar about COVID. But the the goal of the comparison was like, we're, we're still missing the boat on mental health and mm-hmm. car safety and drowning safety, right. you know, despite this pandemic happening. Yeah. One, what, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And, and public and- health is just such a huge missing piece and athletic trainers i think are at a very integral or pivotal point right now in healthcare where we could do so much more public health work we just need to provide ways to do it and knowledge and beyond being provided ways i i and the, the part that we play i think especially in the context of the podcast is helping people have the perception to see the problems to then be able to affect solutions, right? Mm. So, I mean, what I appreciate about what John just did for us is he took something in sport. He took the the microscopic issue in the grand scheme of things. It's a microscopic issue mm. of very few people of color, very few black people participating in water polo at a high level. But from there, he starts to unpack that and starts to realize along with a lot of other people, right? I'm thinking about like the folks who helped out with the Yale research, John. Like that was, yeah, yeah. man, that was critical. What is it like racism mm-hmm. and aquatics or underneath mm-hmm. the surface? Mm-hmm. Like that was a yeah. great resource yeah. that we can provide yeah. for you guys in the show notes. Um, so shout mm-hmm. out to those folks too. But you start to peel back the layers and then you discover this public health crisis, right? And yeah. you get to a point where you start to say that. But it started with the microscopic, like, what is this? This little sport car, water polo in America mm-hmm. at least, why is there such little representation here? Like, well, there. Okay, first yeah. make the observation: there is very little representation. We got to start mm-hmm. there for some people because they don't even. Oh, I don't mm-hmm. have the eyes to see that. Well, you need to get your Correct. eyes checked. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and then yeah. you start to say, "Why? Well, why is that?" Oh, you start peeling mm-hmm. back the layers. Oh, a lot of the folks don't even know how to swim. Well, mm-hmm. Oh, why don't they know how to swim? You didn't really address this, John. But mm-hmm. you just mentioned you did mention like no, they yeah, just yeah. don't have There's access. A lot to it. But yeah, why yeah. don't they have access? Barriers. There's mm-hmm. barriers there. Well, what are the barriers? All they have to do is go to the park and rec and sign up for a swim class, right? No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> John says yeah. no. W- why not, John? 
Yeah. Well, this, I mean, yeah, sorry. I mean, it's, I mean, it's so much to unpack of those barriers because this is where people can learn. You talk about, look, if people want to be educated in America, they put, in the last two years, there's things, there's two things in my mind that Americans need to really put on the forefront of their, their, their new education. One is public health. Public health wasn't a word, you know, before COVID that people could say at a dinner table and receive any sort of understanding, right? This understanding, what is public health? What are the public health outcomes, right? Like, what is our collective response to public health crises and issues? The second is systemic racism, right? And if you haven't, those are the two things, right? If you understand what public health is, and you can understand that systemic racism exists, and that it's real, and that there's like systems in place that are inherently racist and based on racial prejudice, then you are, again, need to open your eyes and really yeah. kind of understand what's going on. That's why there's so much pushback on this. That's why yeah. people are anti-critical race theory in this, because there's this pushback. Like, we don't want to learn that systemic racism is real or systemic. The easiest way for me to understand, to teach people in our community of water polo and aquatics, that systemic racism is real across a lot of fronts is that yeah. there are laws, there were laws and city ordinances and, you know, absolute integrated into our into our systems that segregated and excluded and violently excluded people of color from access to the water. So you can't tell me, Mr. Waterpole person or Mrs. Waterpole person, that systemic racism doesn't exist when I could show you a slew of laws, right, that kept people from learning how to swim. I can show you- Or getting in the water, let alone learn how to swim. Yeah, forget it. You can't even go to the water. You can't go to the beach. I can't even just get right? in there and cool off on a hot day. <laughs> nope, nope. When you talk about, you know, we're, we're in Southern California, right? We're in LA. Talk about cooling off on a hot day. Go read the story of Bruce's Beach. You know, go read the story of Bruce's Beach in Manhattan Beach. For those of you who are listening out there, we don't have time to go through all these stories, right? But mm. a good a good thing to run into is, is to go find out what happened at Bruce's Beach. What happened when Black families, you know, owned right? Pieces of property on the water, right? Why is it that when you go to Malibu, when you go to Manhattan Beach, when you go to Orlando Beach, you go to Newport Beach, you go to St. Clemente, that all the homes along the coast there are owned by white families, right? And and how difficult what happened from, again, from a systemic approach that kept Black homeowners from owning homes on the beach. And then when you're trying to go into the water, to your point, Chris, saying, oh, you're not allowed to be in this beach. You're not allowed to be there. Right. You're not allowed to swim here. You're not allowed to use this pool. You're not allowed to come come to this pool. We don't want, you know, any sort of integration of race, race, race in the pools. Then post Civil Rights Act 1964. Right. We start thinking about, all right, well, all, everything's going to be integrated. Right. These things will go away. Well, cities can then decide. And they, this, they did this to tennis courts and golf courses, too. Right. And they decided, hey, we're just not going to fund the public pool anymore. Right. Why have the public pool? If we got to integrate it, we got to integrate it. We'll just leave it. Maybe someone else. We'll fix it. Maybe a private company will build it. Oh, maybe we'll turn it into a country club. Country, club. right? Maybe we could turn it into where you have to pay to have How access much those to costs? the water. So, yeah, yeah. So then the water now not only becomes the barrier, just a physical legal barrier of getting in the water. Then you add right the notion that you have to pay to get in. So it's a privilege, right? Being having access to water is a huge privilege in not only in this country but in the world. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've come. We've literally come full circle of why. Yeah. yeah. Of why diversity is important yeah. why all aspects of diversity are important at really mm. high levels of mm. sport and leadership and mm. management and mm. administration because people without your experiences john that we've talked about from the beginning mm. are not going to have this mindset they may not mm. seek out this knowledge they may not try to teach this knowledge they may not try mm. to work on the presentation that you worked mm-hmm. on this morning that is going to have such a big mm-hmm. impact facts yeah absolutely well, 
Yeah, I can speak to being as close as I am to the organization that you help lead in mm-hmm. and serve in addition to athletes that I have relationships mm-hmm. with, right? Specifically athletes of color. I think there's there's so many things that are are not maybe mentioned that are are very valuable and it helps them to do what they want to do and what they can do at high levels, right? And th- and then it's just a ripple effect and it helps me to do my job the way that I do it and I you know and all the other folks. Yeah, man, just shout out for just being a great human who's at a high level, you know, and can can see can see the world beyond the microscopic lens, you know, of just sport or whatever. So, yeah, big shout out there, man. Yep. Thank you, man. I, pre- I appreciate that. I mean, I think I think the hardest thing for us to learn it, as people is if it doesn't happen to you personally or if you don't have the lived experience. So I have the lived experience that can directly inform or influence decisions that I make in a leadership role. And so those lived experiences become really are really at the forefront of everything I'm thinking about when I'm when I'm doing my job. The hard part is, is if you're doing the job and you don't have the lived experiences of those who are, who are in your sport. So then the challenge, I think, for all of us and why. I think again, podcasts like this and conversations and intersectionality and all these, you know, everything that we do is important. Is you're trying to educate folks on things that they didn't experience themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That they haven't seen themselves. Right. Like, and I think that's where we can all be more gracious. Yeah. Gracious and, and, and helpful, right. Useful to our friends who, 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 who may not understand this or are fighting us on these things. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, like I'll have a conversation with someone and be like, well, why is that black guy always wearing jeans to the beach? John, what, what's it going? They just don't, they don't like to, they don't even know how to buy swimsuits. They don't know what it's like there. And I'm like, did you know that that kid's father was kicked out of the beach when he tried to go there, you know, when he was a kid and they weren't allowed and, he, and they weren't allowed to go to the beach. He doesn't know. And do you know that his father doesn't know how to swim? Do you know that his father's father, his grandfather, this person's, <laughs> this person's grandfather that you're talking to was, was not, not only not allowed at the beach, right. They just, they internalized the fear of the water because they can never be near it. Right. And now that's generationally in their family. And what you're focused on is that 16 year old boys wearing jeans at the beach. Right. And doesn't know, and doesn't know how to behave at the beach without understanding no intentions and gets into the water. Yeah. Why would he be wearing a bathing suit? (laughs) Yeah. You don't know, you know, maybe he has a shirt off, maybe he has his shoes off. Right. But then it's like, we take something that's we, we again, micro to that person, right? Well, that person's screwing up or he doesn't know what he's doing. She doesn't know what she's doing without thinking of the systems behind it that kind of led, led to a lot of these things that come up. And I think that's where for, for all of us, we just need to be ready to have those conversations instead of being mad at that person yeah. for being mad at the, the kid with the jeans on at the beach. Yeah. Right. We yeah. take that as an opportunity to say, Hey man, like, well, let's talk about this. Like, just so you know, this is where it's at. And that's, and this is, and this is why, Again, where we can use social media for good, where we can use these, you know, where we can use our media outlets for good, and and, and those are okay. But we can use these like just like one-on-one conversations, right? Like, and, and we could take that in any direction if it's in aquatics, if it's anything, you know. For my athletes at Bucknell, you know, even touching on that, they may have never met anybody who was beat up by a police officer in their life. They may have never known that. So when that news story comes on, you know, they're like, "No, oh, that's not real, man. Come on, just comply. Why don't you just have your hands on the steering wheel and just comply?" But I can tell them, like, listen, I'm your water polo coach. You know, I'm here. I want you to know I can comply. I complied my whole life. But here's example A, B, and C where complying did me no good, mm. right? Where I was still singled out and I was still beaten. I was still harassed. I was still taking this. And now that becomes real for that person. And I was like, oh, well, there's this coach that I like and respect who had this lived experience. Maybe I didn't have the experience, but maybe I can learn what happened there. And that's something valuable to share. 
And that goes down to every level, the ATCs they deal with, the doctors they deal with, right? The certification coaches they deal with. That's why representation matters. That's why these conversations matter. That's why every interaction is an opportunity to educate somebody about your lived experiences that can help open their mind. At Vantage is the premier provider for non-traditional work, advocacy, and resources while pushing the boundaries of athletic training. Follow them on social media at The Advantage and join their email list for an even deeper dive into all things non-traditional and access to more boundary-pushing content. The Sister Academy of Advantage, their academy arm, is who brings you great educational content like this podcast. For more resources on professional development, starting a business, or advocacy, head to AdvantageAcademy.com. Love it. I'm going to ask a question to both of you, and I'll just lay the ground a little bit for our listeners, the groundwork for our listeners. I think it has a lot to do with things that we've discussed today. And John, you oversee a bunch of people. So Mm -hmm. this question this question will be a little bit esoteric for both of you, but John, you manage a bunch of people. Chris, mm-hmm. you need to answer the, my question in the way that if you are leading people or one day when you will, mm-hmm. like if you had athletic trainers working under you. Yeah. Okay. But there's, John, you'll appreciate this given you have taught social sciences. There's mm-hmm. social science literature that shows that People will be unhappy in their jobs, independent of salary. So if you control for salary, so it doesn't matter if you make a ton of money, you don't check kind of some of these boxes, you will not be happy in your work. And some of these boxes are if you're disconnected from your values, if you're taken for granted, if you're required to do pointless or redundant work, if your superior is overriding your better judgment. Or if you don't even feel emotionally, you know, safe in the environment. Mm. So, John, as a leader, how do you approach not doing these sort of things? Or, or what is your strategy to support people that you lead? Maybe I should kick off. Be mine's is a little more rudimentary, you know, because yeah. you've got a big task. I think for me, man, honestly, I'm not sure if I check those boxes for one, because I'm not, I don't have that conscious awareness of it being in Mm -hmm. front of me, right? So I think that would be one strategy right off the top is Mm -hmm. to, is make that awareness, you know, bring that to my conscious. I I might Mm -hmm. actually check those boxes accidentally, right? Or Mm -hmm. unconsciously because of my Mm -hmm. lived experiences, right? And all of those things. But if I had to be honest with myself to say that I'm intentional about it, it would, the first thing would be is to help me to know like, okay, let, let me be aware that the science actually shows that if these boxes are ticked, this helps. And if that's what I value, then I want to make sure that I can tick those boxes. But, but what holds me over to help tick those boxes, I think is just, is John kind of alluded to it earlier is I just ensure that I'm trying to be the best human that I can be to, to the other human that I'm trying to lead and serve. Right. I mean, I think that that's probably the the secret sauce that, you know, spills over to, to help all those other things, you know, that innately, I think, yeah, if you yeah. do that, then 
your chances are high that you'll tick some of those other boxes. Yeah. But I'm sure John, John probably has some more like specific things. So I I actually want to hear about this. But I really love the question because of the dynamics of you two, obviously. (laughs) And then I think it gives our listeners more data science to take back into their work settings. And especially if they're in an administrative or managerial or leadership role to understand these sorts of things. And this, and this actually stems from having a very recent constant conversation with an athletic trainer who's been in practice for a year, mm. maybe a little over a year, and it does not, has, has not felt supported, has felt disconnected from values, has been taken for granted, redundant work. This is, I think, carryover mm. of a very old way of practicing athletic training. And mind you, this is at a really large institution with really high level sports and this person is not fulfilled by her, oops, his or her work. Sure. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because, because these things. So I screenshotted this, this paper to her and I was then said, think about some of these things because that's probably why you're not fulfilled. And he or she told me, oh, wow, I, I'd check all those out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, because I think what you're alluding to with all those things is that there's a temptation for managers or there, I don't say temptation. There's a, there's a tendency is the word I was looking for a tendency for managers to see employees as in a transactional manner. Right. So what you ref that science is real, that money doesn't matter. Right. Like if money, you know, and salary were the only things that made us happy, then every celebrity on earth would be really happy. And we wouldn't see addiction rates among celebrities and athletes and all these things be so high, right? Well, these are famous rich people. What's wrong with you? Look at people like, you know, what people are saying right now in LA to Russell Westbrook, right? Oh, who, oh, you're whining, right? Things are hard. People are making fun of you. You make $44 million a year. How could you possibly be unhappy? So we have this transactional relationship with money that like means we're like, well, you have money. It makes you happy. So then as managers, right? We just look down. We're like, well, I'm paying you. How could you not be happy? I'm paying you this, and it's a fair amount. I looked at the market rate. I'm paying you as an ATC X amount. It's fair. Like, how could you not be happy? It's a job and you're making money. And that is old school thinking, right? That just money, again, it's like technical. I talked about technical. You need to meet, read a, a threshold of technical skill for me to, to, to consider you for a job, but then everything else matters more, right? More. You just meet the threshold of technical skill. Then with when you're managing employees, so the large amount of people I'm managing to your point, Adam, or to your question, Adam, is I need to pay them the threshold that's going to make them stop looking around like I'm not making enough money, right? I got to meet that level, right? I have to check the box of like money is not the issue on my mind every day when I'm coming to work. But the second, if I if we can get to that point, right, then treating everything else with more importance is, is, is paramount. Right. And I think, I think when I, I I've been trying to think about this more again lately and, and Chris can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I just want to, when I manage people, I just want them to know that I care about them more as a person than I do about the transaction of the money I'm paying them to do the job that, that they're going because it's, it's difficult, man, because it's, it's a very easy tendency to make happen as a manager, right? Like sometimes when some a work isn't like a job isn't done, my first reaction is, well, I'm paying. Like what, what's going on, man? Like yeah. the paycheck yeah. not come through last Friday. Yeah. That thing is due on Monday. Right. And <laughs> right. That, honest. That's, that's honest. Yeah. yeah. But that's, that's my honest reaction. Sometimes right. I have to stop and be like, well, what happened? You know, what, what are the factors that led to this so that I can understand? And look, if I have to address any work issues, we, we address them, but 
there's you have to make sure people understand you care about them first before it's transactional because that transactional behavior not only is it old school but it's a huge turnoff right and what's happening that leads to those check boxes you're talking about and that makes people unhappy all of that stems from the fact that somebody said well i'm you're just here's money job you know make, make it happen i you know even recently i had a manager a supervisor you can feel free to edit this one if you want you know what i mean but like i if they, I've had, I, I should sell, like edit that part. I'll trade, I'll trade this out. Yeah. I've had managers in the past come to me and tell me like, oh, I see you're driving a new car, John. I'm glad we can make that happen for you. You know, like, like I see you wearing those shoes. I'm glad, I'm glad we could be a part of that. And I go, what do you mean you're part of that? Like, <laughs> like what role did you have in the shoes that I'm wearing? Dog? Me going you know, to like, buy, like, going to the store to buy. Right? Yeah, what? Yeah. what role did you have? Like, do you think this is the only uh, place that I get money? Do you think that like I work here so I can get a paycheck so I can go through, you know, like, yeah. no, dude, I'm wor working at this place is because I want to work here. And because I am like, I am choosing to work here and you are benefiting from my labor, right? Being here, yeah. not the other way around. Right. I'm not benefiting from this paycheck's coming that way. That's a transactional relationship. Ooh, nice car, John. No thank you to us. You know, like I've had that happen. And that's, that's a turnoff. So immediately I feel disconnected. Yeah. Immediately yeah. I feel unhappy, right? Immediately, right? You go down your list, Adam, on that study and that can come up. So you got to get out of this transactional relationship with humans or people in general, any, any, any group you're leading with that coaching, teaching, managing, it's gotta be out. That's know? good. Yeah. And, and yeah. we can just put the cherry on top. I think as service providers, mm -hmm. the transact, we don't have to do, we have to stop being transactional with our athletes too. If you're an athletic trainer caring for athletes, stop being just transactional with them as it relates to their injury, right? Like I'm only going to interact with this person and give them attention or the time of day based on the transactions of your injury or your illness and what you get in in exchange for that from me. Yeah, we have to be the same. There's a certain threshold, of course, but then we as service providers need to go to the next level and say, how do I care about this person as a human as I treat or care for or, or interact with them on this more surface level? Yeah. Love it. And John- Thank yeah. you, brother. We yeah. we appreciate you being with us. We could we could probably go on and on about so many things, right? Well, John, yeah. thank yeah. you so much for your time today. I think yeah. there is a reason that you are leading people at the level that you're leading at. And I think mm -hmm. our listeners are gonna appreciate that today. So we're just extremely happy that you you took the time with us. We will cite many things and, and provide references for things that we talked about today in our show notes. And as always, our listeners can find links to everything from at last, how to support us, how to email us, how to find us on social media, connect with us on, on LinkedIn and Instagram. We will provide those links. We'll provide similar links to uh, check out John's work on social media. And again, Appreciate the time today. Honored to be in this space with you guys. And, and I think I value your mission and, and what you're trying to do here and echo it out to everybody out there and we're, uh, as we try to get through this together. So thank you. It was an honor and a privilege. Thank you.